Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. Good morning, everyone. Uh, this is your host again, Paolo Mimbella, here with Dr. Jason Edwards. And we have the distinct honor of uh, speaking today with Dr. Kirschblum, who's here just given a great uh, Grand Rounds lecture on kind of the current state of some of the advanced um, rehabilitative techniques within spinal cord injury medicine. Good morning, Dr. Kirschblum. Good morning. Thank you so much. So um, when you started the presentation today, you started off by telling us that we need to look at the past to kind of understand where the present, uh, where the present is. You know, I think that's probably conceptually uh, an important concept regardless of what area of medicine or science we're talking about. What did you mean by we need to understand the past to, to understand the present? So I think that it's an important point, not only in medicine, but in life as well, to understand where we've been in the past, not only to understand the present, but really to moving forward in the future. Okay. Ultimately, the present is gone tomorrow. Uh, so it's really figuring out what we can do in rehab medicine, certainly for our patients, uh, not only today, but preparing them for tomorrow as well. The reason it's important is because oftentimes there are roads that have been taken already that unless you know which roads don't work and end up in dead ends, you're going to repeat the same mistakes. And I have seen that many times where people will make proposals for quote unquote new interventions and without realizing that been there, done that, um, and that you may need to change the focus of what you're looking at. So we shouldn't get bogged down in the history, but certainly understanding the history uh, is important. And I'll just say one other thing about that. Well, sure. The reason I bring it up is to make always a positive point. The history is a field of doom and gloom. There's a lot of pessimism. When I first entered the field, people would say to me, why are you doing that? Why is spinal cord injury? It's such a you know, pessimistic area. Uh, and I think people have to recognize that that may be the stereotype of the past. The view of the future is, is that this is an exciting area. It's an area where there could be tremendous impact that physiatrists especially can play, most importantly because of the role that rehabilitation will play with, whether it be neurosurgical interventions, pharmacological interventions, etc. Well, when you say in the past it's been this field of doom and gloom, what do you mean kind of the permanency of these injuries? Is, is that what you're referring to? Both the permanency as well as the view that people with spinal cord injury, uh, they're disabled and can't really be very productive in life. Uh, people will always say, well, yes, there's the exception of this person or that person. But I think that it's important to understand uh, the focus of that the past of people not being able to do things should not interfere with our willingness to try to figure out ways to get them to be active members of the community, 
of work life, of family life, etc. Okay. Right? We think about the history of how many patients were able to have children in the past, right. how many people were able to go back to work in the past. And we need to understand that while there is that negative vibe, that therefore that means that these are the areas of focus we need to emphasize. Dr. Kirschman, if I can kind of hijack even the podcast for a second, one of the um, one of the interventions that you mentioned that I found particularly fascinating that I'd never even heard of was um, using hypoxia and uh, inducing a little bit more of neuro recovery. Um, and part of the reason that I find it so fascinating is because one of the core tenets of rehabilitative medicine is in and of itself functional exercise. And functional exercise in and of itself is these little mini states of hypoxia. So if we can use any little bit of evidence that I can use to even help somebody, be it in spinal cord injury medicine, brain, you know, brain injury medicine, or any other um, injury that requires you know, uh, functional exercise, helps me convince my patients you know to 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 put forth that effort so um what can you what what do you know about um, hypoxia and its induction of uh, neural recovery or neuroplasticity so well a you can't hijack your own (laughs) (laughs) good point Um, i think that the the uh, literature on intermittent hypoxia really comes from the animal model. It comes from work that was initially done with the phrenic nerve. Unbelievable studies to see how uh, phrenic nerve can be generated, in, or, or, or we could say that the animal really just is able to breathe after an acute injury to the phrenic nerve from hypoxia. So it's brilliant. Um, and, and today, during the presentation, I did uh, show a couple of the articles, although there are a number of more articles, not a significant amount in, in, in people. But there are, you know, enough articles for uh, this field to move forward. Um, you know, I think the one caveat should be that it is not the hypoxia alone that is the trigger. Okay. And the way that I would think of it is, is that the uh, hypoxia is the primer. When you're doing painting, right? The first thing, not that I'm a big painter, but after you, after you fill up the little holes, you then put a priming coat on, and then you put the paint on. The hypoxia is the primer. The treatment is the rehabilitation. So if you notice, just giving intermittent hypoxia isn't gonna make someone better. But if you give intermittent hypoxia with the treatment, that seems to allow the uh, function to be better. Now, there's not enough evidence to prove why. One of the big theories is regarding the serotonin that's, that's involved and that it seems to be the serotonergic activity that makes the difference. But it's a great debate. There was just a meeting a few weeks ago on intermittent hypoxia and even the leaders of the field couldn't come up with one absolute way. So further study is needed. Okay. But I do believe that it's, it's one of the exciting areas that are moving forward. We have to be careful though, to, as I mentioned in the talk, to look at possible side effects. Okay. Uh, people should not be, the, the hypoxia should be in very short intervals uh, and, and very carefully done. Okay. Um, definitely something that I'm personally gonna read a little bit more up on and follow in the literature. I've, I found it very interesting. Okay. Um, some of the topics that you touched upon were some of, in my opinion, and my, my very naive opinion, um, some of the most advanced 
you know, technologies and innovative techniques for rehabilitating somebody with a spinal cord injury medicine. You talked about, you know, implantable devices. You talked about robotics. You talked about um, systemic acting medications with the potential for um, uh, increasing, you know, some neural recovery, some neuroplasticity. Um, when it comes to, to, you know, putting forth these particular um, research projects, how is it that we can best figure out which, which patients are best candidates for which interventions? Uh, that's a really important uh, question, and there may be a, a couple of important points of the question that I, that I would tackle. Okay. Uh, number one is, is that I did try to stick with some of the quote-unquote sexier aspects of interventions okay. uh, regarding uh, you know, technology, because I think that's what people want to hear on the one hand. But I also try to make the point at the end about that we really need to focus on some of the other day-to-day issues. And we didn't have a chance to talk about the importance of focusing on bowel issues, bladder issues, plasticity, pain. These are the issues that so are so critical to people with spinal cord injury to get them to move forward in their daily activities. So while epidural stimulation or transcutaneous stimulation or hypoxia maybe something that may help them for other things, we need to really focus on these issues that impact us day to day. Um, I do think that uh, finding the patients that meet these criteria for all the different projects uh, is always a most pertinent uh, aspect of enrollment. And that it comes into figuring out what our objective or our trial really is and then we can sort of find people that will meet that criteria. All too often, the studies are too broad or recruit patients of different levels of injury, different severities of injuries, and that may be a part of where some of the failures have been in some of the past studies. Okay, and I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot here with this question, but one of the the particulars that you touched upon was the classification, so how do we classify patients? And currently, at least what we're taught in residencies, you know, the Asian impairment scale, um, as far as figuring out, you know, the level of completeness um, um, of a particular injury. Putting you on the spot a little bit by saying, in your opinion, with your experience, um, how can we better recruit patients, you know, with a little bit more uniformity to, okay, this patient is within the same age group, same gender, same type of injury, you know, ischemic versus traumatic, and so on and so forth. So uh, I don't mind being put on the spot, so uh, (laughs) there's no problem with that. I I do think, though, uh, no one should get the sense that uh, I would say anything negative about the Asian impairment scale and classification. It is so important for what its purpose is. Its purpose is to classify patients so that we understand what their level of injury is, what the severity of their injury is and what we could potentially do to help these patients on an individual basis. I think the uh, problem is is that if people use this as the only criteria for enrollment in a trial, there are so many variabilities that go into what is an Asian impairment scale C patient. Is it a C because they just have more than three levels in their upper extremities and nothing in their lowers? Or they have something in their lower extremity? If they're a C, is it because they have just volunteer and contraction or do they have real motor function in the legs. So too the problematic issue comes with the Asian parallel scale legs. To answer your question specifically, I think that what we need to do is just use other additional, not instead of, 
additional criteria. So for example, if we're going to use an age impairments classification of C, let's make sure that the C's that we're recruiting are similar. Okay. Meaning, upper versus lower extremity sparing. Is it voluntary contraction only? Or if we're looking at A's, what about some of the neurophysiologic measures that we can use? Uh, whether it's someone that says to revoke potentials, motor revoke potentials. So there are a lot of other things that we can do to make sure that we're utilizing the same patients. And the last point on that I would say is that when we're looking at different interventions, we have to be careful to be overly, overly inclusive, but overly exclusive. Meaning that we know that people who are, have a, are of a certain age, they may not recover the same as a person who, let's say a 70-year-old may not recover the same as a 20-year-old. But that doesn't mean that all studies should therefore exclude people over the age of 70. We need to have studies that will focus on intervention for the younger patient, and another one for the older patient. Uh, because clearly today, my sense is, is that I'm seeing more and more studies that are excluding the patient over the age of 60. But the problem is, is that if you take a look at the epidemiology of spinal cord injury, more and more of the current injuries are people over the age of 60. Okay. So why aren't we studying the population that is so pertinent to be studied? Okay. Okay. Dr. Kirschman, you talked about how um, patients kind of are searching for hope. We have all these exciting things going on, and they look always looking elsewhere, maybe for something else that they can get involved in. How do you balance uh, patient expectations um, while not taking away hope, especially in that early rehabilitation period? Hope is such an important aspect of everything we do. Uh, we all have hopes and dreams, uh, and I know that uh, the patients that I have the opportunity to take care of and their families similarly have hopes and dreams. I never try to take away their hope. No one should ever do that. Uh, hope itself is a positive thing, um, and I know that some people will say, well, you have to be realistic. You have to tell them exactly what it is. Uh, I've yet to learn enough to know that I know exactly what will be for every patient. Uh, I can tell you what the statistics show for a thousand patients, but I can't tell you where one individual will be. Will that be the person that converts or not converts? And so therefore I'm very, very careful with that. The issue of hope comes in balancing is, does the hope interfere with my ability to treat the patient in the best way that I think we can? Is it interfering with them achieving their goals? So for example, if the patient says to me, I'm not gonna learn how to do transfer training until I can walk. Well, now it interferes with my ability to work with them and help them. That's where that a further discussion is gonna be. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between hope and, there's a, and what we need to do. The one thing that I think is the most critical, uh, and, and I'll keep this short, I could probably speak about this for, for a while, is uh, whenever I have that issue with a patient where they say what they believe and it's interfering with what we need to accomplish, the term that I've learned from my psychologist who I've worked so closely with over the years, Dr. Joyce Fichtenbaum, is to use the term for now. They refuse to want to catheterize themselves. They'll kick out the catheter when they're able to void independently. And what I say to them is, I'm not saying you'll never be able to void independently. What I'm saying is, for now, until you can do that, 
Let's do catheterization because it may be a better way for you to manage your bladder. For now, let's use the, the, the transfer board to help you get from point A to point B. I know that you believe that as a C7, for example, you should be independent with transfers, but the transfer board will help you for now, and then soon you'll be independent. So by not negating their hope, but by incorporating their hope into your treatment plan is what I find now to be the best approach. I, th I think that's an important point. Um, you know, saying for now, um, you brought up something during your lecture that it is our job to make sure that these patients remain healthy enough to be viable candidates for trials for some of the studies that we're looking at. I thought that was a very important point. You know, all too often, what patients will say to me, uh, someone who is dejected, uh, feeling down, which certainly is, is understandable, they'll say, when the cure is out there, let me know. And what I say to them is, no one's going to include you as a research individual, as a couch potato. Right? You sit at home, you do nothing. You're not someone that will be recruited. The people that we recruited are the people who are integrated, who are active, who are healthy. A diabetic who's 40 pounds overweight, who is not getting out, is not going to be necessarily included in the trial. So I think that the key here is, and one of the points that I tried to make in the uh, presentation was that even though when we're talking about research, we're talking about care of people with spinal cord injury, and that we for whatever the patient may say that will come out because they're feeling down, because their life has been turned upside down relative to what they're used to. Uh, our job is to find ways to get them back on the path so that they can be as healthy as possible. Okay, so essentially if I can kind of recap one of the things you're saying there is, okay, you have a spinal cord injury, but you're not exempt from all the other things that afflict human beings. I mean, you can still develop, you know, all these other complications, pulmonary complications, endocrine complications. And part of our job is to help somebody, you know, make sure that that doesn't become a barrier toward progress moving forward, right? Uh, absolutely. We, uh, our job, sometimes people say, well, as a physiatrist, what do you do? The neurosurgeon did the surgery. Right. The neurologist may be able to take care of some of the other issues. The urologist takes care of the bladder. The psychologist may take care of the uh, mood. The therapist takes care of the therapy. So can you tell me exactly what you do as a spinal cord specialist? Uh, and I think that the points that you made is so critical. The spinal cord specialist is the person who, one, will integrate everything else. Because when you're working in silos, and that's what happens, Everyone's working in silos. The, the, the uh, urologist is working in his silo, maybe putting Botox into the bladder, but are they understanding what's happening with their peripheral spasticity? The therapist may be doing one thing, the neurosurgeon another thing. It's the physiatrist, the spinal cord specialist, who will understand all those medical complications, that they are at risk for metabolic syndrome, that they're at risk for other cardiovascular issues, the skin, the dysreflexia, so many other things, and putting it all together to make sure that the patient stays healthy. It's easy for people to treat when people come to the hospital for medical complications. And that was, and in the old days, and even today, that's the greatest thing, right? You make money by the patient coming to your hospital. But it's our job to 
know the past, know the medical complications that patients will develop, and prevent them. And that's the true reward of being the spinal cord specialist, is keeping the person out of the hospital. Uh, and that really is what I think our biggest job uh, is, and, and so critical. And unless, of, uh, in my mind, this is purely opinion, unless the patient is followed by the physiatrist, they have good isolated care, but they're, it's not preventive in nature. Okay. What do you think, in your opinion, are some of the biggest barriers to making sure that all of these patients receive this, this level of care, this level of integrated care? I guess we're in the time where I can get myself in trouble. <laughs> I like to ask all, all the tough questions here. I think that the uh, I think there are a couple of obstacles. Obstacle number one is the uh, healthcare system. The way that it's moving is not fully understanding the role of the physiatrist, and this is affects not only spinal cord but other disorders in general. Uh, I applaud those centers where physiatry is in inculcated and integrated into the healthcare system, but that's not the case in most centers. And because of that, people don't truly understand um, what role we play, and therefore, if they don't understand it, you become a cost center as opposed to a true investment in, in, in healthcare. Some centers are realizing this when it comes to musculoskeletal medicine. People are realizing that, okay, if we integrate physiatry, that maybe we can prevent, can prevent certain surgical procedures, uh, maybe we can prevent some complications after surgical procedures, so it's not only decreasing surgery, but also improving outcomes. But I'm not sure that uh, hospital systems have seen this in the realm of neurologic disorders as well. No interest in competing with our colleagues in other fields, but I do think that we would be critically important partners in as we move to population health, making a dramatic impact. One of two things will happen, uh, and hopefully it's the former, which is that physiatry has a major role in these large healthcare networks, understanding their role, not necessarily as primary care physicians for the disabled, but involvement in the care at all levels. The latter will be is where if we don't advocate enough for ourselves that you know we could be left out of some of these and that would be the I think only a short term because then hospital systems will realize oh my gosh why are we getting all these patients back this isn't good for us this is costing us money so hopefully we can educate the people that are making these decisions earlier rather than later so you you were virtually inside my head reading my thoughts while you were just you know explaining what you were explaining my next question was going to be is the onus somewhat at least on us also to show you know that we have far better outcomes with our patients when we're involved early in their care when we're involved in in this integrative approach yes but i think that we have to become much better educated at articulating our views one and two, not only talking the talk, but giving the data and the information that is so critical. The people that are making these decisions no longer want to see a slideshow of how nice it is to take care of patients and what a good job you do. They want to know the financial impact and how it's going to impact their healthcare system. And I believe that as a field, we need to continue to move towards that 
field education, not just center education, but field education so that physiatry will improve its standing across the board. Um, and I applaud those people that are doing it, and I think we need to continue to do it. So if you have a great mode of getting that information to your CEO or your president of the healthcare system in Hospital X, to share that with Hospital YZ across the country so that the field is a benefit and ultimately the patients are a benefit as well. But there needs to be that business plan okay. that's shared as well. Dr. Kirshen, do you have any advice for you know, residents or, or some of our fellows as far as balancing, successfully balancing a clinical career um, on top of an academic one, getting involved in research and then at the same time also advocating for our specialty like we were just talking about? Yeah, that's a very important uh, aspect. And I know that people think that things are different today than they were 20 years ago. They're really not. We always think things are different. And, and things are different in terms of technology. But I don't know if balance is something that's new. Um, you know, I hear about the generational differences. And yes, of course, there are generational differences. But I think that the keys to success is the following. Number one, you need to dream. You need to dream because all too often people think about, you know, they'll spend months planning a wedding or a vacation. Yet how much time do people really spend dreaming about what their dream life will be like in terms of work? Um, and it's a difficult because you come from being a medical student, right, and then you uh, match to residency and then you match to fellowship. Your whole life, you don't have to really dream. but. But work, once you get out there, you really need to dream. You need to find your calling. Know what you want to do. You have to have passion with what you want to do, and that will make you happy. All too often, people think about, oh, I want to take this job because it's paying me more money, and that's good for my family. I don't think that that's the right way to do it. Uh, most times, I find people that take jobs for the money because of their family, so to speak. Uh, it, they're, they're unhappy in their job, if they are. That's not good for their family. Uh, the next part is, is that uh, you need to work hard. Uh, success doesn't come because you will it. Uh, you need to put the effort in. Enthusiasm is a great character trait. But you need that endurance too. You need to work at it. You need to have balance though. Uh, where is that balance? Everyone has to find it within themselves what is the right balance. Don't look at other people and say, that's, that's what I want, or that's not what I want. You, have, you can't be in someone else's shoes. You have to figure out what works for you. Uh, I oftentimes hear people saying, well, I want to work only X amount of hours a day, but I want to be chair, and I want to be this, I want to be that. Figure out what your dreams are. Uh, put it to reality as much as possible, but work at it. And, and I think those will be the critical uh, points. Thank you. Kirsten, um, I know you're pressed a little bit for time. If there's anything else that you'd like to share, well, you know, the floor is definitely yours. Uh, Open-ended questions is a tough one. <laughs> uh, dangerous. No, I think that the, uh, it really was a great opportunity to be here. Certainly uh, being in a program that Dr. Francisco has built up, uh, to me, is just such an amazing experience, seeing him and working with him when he was a resident and being his program director to seeing what he's, he's done it just gives tremendous, uh, 
inner warmth to, to really understand. Uh, you'll see as time goes on when when you have when your kids grow up and, and do well. Not that he's my child, but <laughs> to some degree, when your trainees really go and, and succeed, uh, I think it's amazing. Especially when you succeed, not only from the academic standpoint, but from teaching, commitment, compassion, and certainly those are things that he he does. I think that the main point that I wanted to make today in the lecture was regarding the potential for the future of the field, but also the role that physiatry plays in every aspect of what will happen in the future. We have to understand, especially for those physiatrists, those that are involved in the rehab world, we make a difference. And if we understand that we make a difference, that will really help the healthcare system and most importantly, help the patient. Dr. Kirsten, it's been an honor. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us and uh, for taking the time to, to do this recording as well. My pleasure. Hopefully we'll be back. Ladies and gentlemen, as we close another session of our podcast, I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.